There are many things that are important in the life of the church of Christ. Many, there are many aspects of the life of the church that, that lead to its growth and fellowship and growth numerically. We tend to think it's the gift of the people. We think, tend to think it's the friendliness of the people. We tend to think it's the abilities of the minister, the leadership qualities of the elders. Churches that are growing have certain constituent aspects to them. They have biblical preaching of God's Word. They have people who are committed to the way of Christ. They have, they have aspects of that commitment that is manifesting itself in fellowship. And whilst the devil does seek to attack explicitly those who have leadership responsibilities, I think that one of the principal ways in which the devil seeks to take life, life energy, not the life of the church, the energy out of the life of the church, is by leading those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ into situations where they shouldn't go. They submit to the temptation. And having submitted to the temptation, they then have a sense that they have lost their usefulness in the church. And they withdraw. They don't withdraw physically. They still are physically present and maybe still physically active. But spiritually, they have withdrawn. They have withdrawn. And they've withdrawn because of a sense of failure. Often that failure is masked. Masked with excuse. Masked with a lack of intensity of involvement. Masked by becoming engaged in other activities. But whatever it is, whatever it is, the church suffers. The life of the church suffers. It's almost imperceptible. It's not that Suddenly, you know, they've, they've gone and are no longer there. It's, it's, it's much more subtle than that. The enemy is much more discreet about it than that. He tends not to be up front in the way he does things. He tends to skirt around the ages because he knows that we're more consciously aware of when there's a full-on attack. We tend to be able to identify that, see it, and say, hey, I'm not going for that. He's much, much more nuanced than that. He knows us far better than we know ourselves. He doesn't know as well as God knows us. God knows everything about us. But the enemy in his wiles, he's been at it for a long, long, long time. He knows different personality types. He knows the way in which a personality type thinks, a personality type behaves. And he knows how you throw things into the life of a personality type that will draw them out into a situation and then engage them in a way in which they will feel as though they have been a disappointment. And so he, very subtly, very casually, very discreetly, sucks the joy out of many people's life in the church. And it just becomes frequently an activity center. An activity center. Where there isn't any great uh, commitment and passion for walking in an obedient way of Christ. And you find that whenever people 
aren't getting what they want in the life of the church. Those who are breathing intently into the presence of Christ understand that. They understand why God hasn't opened that particular door for them in the life of the church. But when the person has been, as it were, um, degraded in their spiritual life by this sense of failure, they don't accept the reality of it. They tend to fall back and say, well, if that's the way it's going to be, I'm just not going to involve myself as much as I previously involved myself. That's not a healthy or good sign. And so, in looking at the experience of Peter tonight, I want us to be careful not just to say, well, this is an apostle of Jesus. Uh, I'm not an apostle of Jesus, so this isn't really applicable to me. It's more applicable to you and me than what we think it is. For the experience that Peter went through is something that you and I can go through in greater or lesser degree, but the consequences can be exactly the same. I read together how Peter had been called by Jesus to leave the task which he was giving himself to, the fishing for fish and come and to follow him and be a fisher of men. It's interesting that that night they had fished and they had nothing. Couldn't find anything. These were experienced fishermen. These weren't like me going out fishing. I've only been on a lake once fishing. I'll not tell you who I was with because that would only embarrass him. He was telling me, you'll enjoy this. This will be great. We fished about an hour and a half and we caught nothing. Not a thing. And then he took one of my children out fishing. And within three or four minutes, she was catching fish from the land like as if the fish were jumping on the hook. She was just pulling them up and pulling them up. These men were professional fishermen. They knew where to fish and how to fish. So the fact that they had got nothing, and he said, let your, let your nets down. And such was the, the, the deluge of fish that filled their nets on that occasion that they had to bring the other boat in. And that other boat helped. And the two boats we read in the Gospel of Matthew were sinking. Such was the weight of the fish. Such was the weight of the fish. And it's at that point he is called to follow Jesus. And then we read, as I mentioned, that phenomenal statement in Luke's Gospel where Jesus asked his disciples, who do they say that Jesus is? And we have this confession of Peter that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Truly astonishing. Absolutely remarkable. We read passages of Scripture like that and we just read them over and we don't really stop and think and meditate upon what was the gravity of those words that come out of that man's mouth in that day given to him by the Father. Given to him by the Father. You are the Messiah. You are the Christ. The whole Jewish nation had been waiting for those words to be declared for centuries. They had been waiting. Mothers had bounced a baby boy in the knee, wondering, is this the Messiah? And now this man, Simon Peter, is given by the Father these words of instruction and understanding that this, this is the Messiah. You, Jesus, are the Christ. And then Jesus tells them not to tell anyone. Such is the import of the words and the statement that Peter has said. 
And then we come to that passage in Luke's Gospel, chapter 22, where we read of the, the denial of the Lord Jesus. Jesus has said to Luke, he says, Simon has desired to sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you. How many times has Jesus prayed for us as part of his bride? Things in our lives that have seemed impossible and God has worked as a consequence of the praying of the Lord Jesus for us. How many things in our families have we been prevented from because of the praying of the Lord Jesus for us? And Peter says that he would go anywhere. He would, he would go with him to prison. He would even die. That wasn't a thoughtless, careless statement by Peter. He wasn't just ranting and pontificating. He was an exceptionally able man. And he, he, he was an impetuous individual. He, he tended to speak, but he didn't always speak without thinking. People have this view of Peter that he was just a ranter and a raver and he just said the first thing that came out of his mouth. That's not, that's not fair. If you read about the Apostle Peter, you see that he was a much more considered man than that. But he was a man of clarity of thought. And when he thought that there was something to say, he didn't hang back and say, well, I'm going to see if a few other men will say this. He said what was on his mind. But it would be wrong to assimilate that or to correlate that with just a random expression of words because he wanted to be the center of attention. He didn't want to be the center of attention. He expressed his love for the Lord Jesus. He knew he loved the Lord Jesus. He had, he had left the fish behind, his professional career behind, and he'd followed after the Lord Jesus. He'd followed the command of the Lord Jesus. And he had walked with Jesus and he'd heard Jesus teach. He'd witnessed the miracles of Jesus and he'd submitted himself to the life of Jesus, his life to, to Jesus' commands. He was an honest man marked by tremendous integrity. And so when he, he says here that he is going to go to prison and, and to death. We just don't read that and think, oh, there's Peter going again. You know, blurting it out before he'd thought about it. That's not the case. It's not the case. And then Jesus says to him, I'll tell you, Peter. And how it must have hurt the heart of Jesus, in a sense, to say this. Having said, I prayed for you that your faith may not fail. To then, in a few sentences later, say, I tell you, Peter, the cock will not crow this day until you have denied me three times. And so Jesus is taken, and he is arrested, and they're taking him into the court of the high priest. And Peter, we are told, told follows along. He follows along at a distance. And then he comes into the courtyard and there's a fire there. And that fire lights up his face because he's sitting in his visible. And there's a servant girl there. And the servant girl looking at Peter sees him and she recognizes him and says, this man also is with him. And, he, and he, he's very quick to say, woman, I don't, don't know, you, know him. There's no hesitation. He is, he is declaring the fact that he, he doesn't know Jesus. It's astonishing. But nonetheless, that's what he says. And then, shortly after that, um, he, he is challenged by another man. And he says, you were one of them. And he says, man, I am not. He's quite, he's quite adamant. He's not. 
And then another person comes and speaks to him. But it's not like as if this just happens one, one moment after another after another. There is, a, there is an interval between the servant girl and the next man. We're not told how long that duration of that interval is. But then we are told that there's at least an hour before the third man comes along. Well, the second man, the third person, comes along and challenges Peter. So it wasn't just he was put on the spot and suddenly he says something and then he has to defend himself quickly. And before he knows it, there's three strikes against him before he's had even time to think. No, there's been an hour when he can sit there and he's sitting in the fire and he's thinking and I'm sure that what he has said has gone through his mind. He's mulling it over and, and then the question comes again. Certainly this man also was with him for he too is a Galilean. The question wasn't put to Peter. Notice that. The first one is, this man, she, she, she looks at him and says, this man also is with him. And then he says, you also are with him. And then the third one just makes a statement. Just makes a statement. Doesn't ask the question. He just says, you were with him. Because you're a Galilean. He's basically saying, I know by the way you dress and your accent that you're a Galilean. You were with him. He doesn't actually point the finger at Peter and say it, but he says to the rest of them, certainly, this man was with him. And Peter then says, man, I do not know what you're talking about. And immediately before the sentence is completed, the cock crows. And Jesus is standing. And Jesus turns round. And he just looks at Peter. And Peter looks at Jesus. There's nothing here that is incidental or coincidental. The look of Jesus is deliberate. It's engaging. It's eye to eye. And the look is all that is needed. There's not a shake of the head. There's not a tut-tut. But it's a devastating look. And it's a look of gentle rebuke. Did I not tell you that you would deny me Three times before the cock crowed. And Peter bows his head, leaves the courtyard, and we read that he wept bitterly. He was broken. He wept unconsolably. If any of you men have lived long enough and had occasion enough to weep as Peter wept, you know what this man felt. You know what he felt. You know that he didn't want to be with anybody else. You know he just wanted to be on his own. And he wasn't crying for effect. He wasn't crying to feign attention or affection. He was crying because he had denied the one whom he declared he loved. Now, Jesus did meet Peter after this. We know from 
Luke's Gospel, chapter 24, verse 34, and 1 Corinthians 15, 5, that they did meet. And it's inconceivable to think that Peter did not convey in some way to Jesus his sorrow. They couldn't have met and Peter not said something. I mean, it would have been extremely, extraordinarily difficult. But just as if, just to think that they carried on as if nothing had happened, it just doesn't stand human reason and human challenge. But that was a private encounter. Peter's denial had been public. And so, now Jesus is going to deal with Peter. And he's going to deal with him. Having called him to follow him, Peter having confessed from his lips that Jesus was Messiah, Peter having denied Jesus in the presence of these witnesses, Jesus is now going to restore him. It's not going to be easy for Peter. But it's incredible how the scene is set up in John's Gospel. There they are fishing again, just as when he had been called initially to follow him. And again, they're not catching anything. Why are they fishing? Because Peter has said, I'm going fishing. I'm going fishing. What's he saying when he's saying, I'm going fishing? He's saying, I'm going back to my work pre-Jesus. Why is he saying, I'm going back to my work pre-Jesus? Because this man is heartbroken at his denial of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there are times in our lives when we just want to go back. We want to do that which will not see us effective in the life of the church. We may have a reason for that. We may say it's because of what someone else has done or someone else has said to us. We want to withdraw. We want to go in, as it were, into hibernation. But the reality is that our role in that, we are culpable as well. And it's challenging us, and it has challenged us. We haven't denied the faith or denied Jesus the way that Peter did, but we have denied him in other ways. That sinful behavior, sinful practice, sinful thought. And the reality of it, that's a denial as well, because we say that we believe in Jesus with all our heart, soul, and mind, because He laid down His life to redeem us by His own shed blood, and we believe that, and yet we live at times as though we don't believe it. And so we withdraw, we go back to the fishing. Gone fishing. Gone fishing. And Peter takes the others with him. Well, if you're going, we'll go as well. That shows a testimony of his ability to lead and influence those around him. They catch nothing. I wonder, did Peter think in that night when they caught nothing of the night in which they had caught nothing? And Jesus said, let your, let your nets down the other side. And here there is one standing on the, on the bank and he says to him, children, do you have any fish? And he said, no. He says, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. Now this, this was not a good time to fish. This was dawn. Fish aren't there. They're not far from the shore. Fish don't, uh, as it were, create shoals next to the shore. At least not big fish. You'll get small fish near the shore. 
You're not get big fish in the shore. Big fish need space. And we're told they have 153. Isn't it interesting? There's 153. Imagine standing counting these fish. They'd gone fishing all night and caught nothing. And here in a matter of moments, the net is so full of fish. What's Jesus saying to Peter? You want to go fishing? You want to go fishing? We can fish all you want, but without me you'll catch nothing. And so they come in. And there he is on land. Once Peter hears that it's Jesus or sees it's Jesus, he strips, or he stripped himself, he puts his garment on, he throws himself into the sea, and he makes his way to the, to the land. What does that tell you? He still wants to be with Jesus. He still wants to be with Jesus. He doesn't say, well, let's row away from this person on the bank because we know who it is, and I really don't want to meet him. I've met him a couple of times since, since I denied him, but listen, I don't like bumping into him. No, he jumps into the, he throws himself into the sea. He can't wait. He, he literally throws himself into the sea. And he makes his way there, and what does he find? A fire. When was the last time he was at a, a place where there was a fire in public? In the courtyard where he denied Jesus. All these things are reminding Peter. They're memories of what he has gone through. And after they have eaten, and Jesus gives them bread to eat and fish to eat, He comes to Simon Peter and he says to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Do you love me? You see, this is the key point. This is the key point. If you're caught in a situation in your life where you have regrets or there's disappointments about sin, or denying Jesus in whatever way, and the devil is saying to you, it's time for you to take a back seat, because really you've had your opportunity, you've messed it up right and royally, and you really just want to take a back seat, because nobody really is going to trust you again. Nobody is going to accept anything that's going to come out of your mouth. You're not a failure. You're not a failure. We'll grant you that. But you'll certainly not enjoy your Christian life, and you'll not be of any service in the kingdom again. And you see, Jesus comes along and he doesn't lay out a five-point plan for, for Peter to be restored. He doesn't say to him, Peter, you did deny me. We met in private. You did share your sorrow at that. But now we're in public and these men understand what you did on that night because it's all been heard about. And we need to address this publicly because it was a public denial, so we have to address it publicly. We can't sweep it under the carpet. We have to deal with it. And here's what we have to do. We're going to have to work through a, a program of, of, of restoration. Now, there, is a, there are situations in the life of the church where there has to be an approach taken with someone who has committed public sin. Depending on that public sin that there has to be a thought-through plan of restoration. You just can't do it willy-nilly. But the principal point here is that Jesus asked this man, 
a question three times. The same question. Now, he uses two different verbs in the Greek. But we're not going to get caught up in that tonight because we can make a lot of that and lost the point. I'm not saying it's not worth consideration. Time is gone. We don't have time for that. But what does Jesus ask him? He says to him, Simon, son of John, are you going to submit to my plan of restoration? Is that what he says to him? He says, do you love me? Do you love me? And Simon responds and says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And then Jesus gives him the task. He reiterates the call. That's it. It's done with. We've sorted it out. We've dealt with the public situation. We've dealt with your, your public denial. Uh, I've asked you the question. You've now expressed an answer to that. We can move on. No, Jesus doesn't say, let's move on. Jesus says a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Okay. He's trying to make sure that Simon had time to think. He didn't just express it without thought. Yes, Lord, you know that I love you, he said to him, tend my sheep. But then he comes a third time. Why a third time? Why a third time? Because how many times had Simon denied Jesus? Three times. Publicly. And so Jesus is calling this man to affirm his love for Jesus three times. For whose sake? For his own sake. Not Jesus' sake, but for Peter's sake and for the sake of these apostles. That as he would remember and the devil would rise up to him the fact that he had denied Jesus three times, Peter, as he would become an old man, would be led round by others to places he wouldn't go, would remember in his heart that day when he stood in this beach, 153, um, 153 fish having been caught round that charcoal fire when Jesus had asked him, not once, not twice, but three times, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And, and Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Peter is brought here to the point that he is grieved. Not that he is offended by what Jesus is asking him, but he's grieved at his own heart that he's having to express his love again because he knows that Jesus knows that he loves him. And yet why is Jesus putting him through this? Because Jesus wants Peter to know that he knows. That's it. Peter knows that he loves Jesus. Peter's right. Jesus knows that Peter loves him. But Jesus wants Peter to know that Peter loves him. And I would say to you tonight, if you're in a place where the devil is twisting and playing games with your heart and mind and saying, you're never really going to be able to to serve in the bride of Christ the way you thought you once did because of what you have done. Jesus says to you, do you love me? Do you love me? That's all that Jesus wants to hear. But that all is a phenomenal, profound all. Because if you love Jesus with your heart, soul, and mind, everything you have, then He can restore you to whatever role He would have you to have in the future. He craves 
the declaration of your love, not because he needs it. He doesn't crave it because he is dependent upon your affection to rule in heaven over all creation. It's not that he's waiting in the church to express its love to him so that he will then be sent by the Father to unite, unite all things in heaven and earth. It's not that he is dependent upon us, but he wants us to declare our love for him so that we will, we will know that we love him. We don't tell Jesus enough that we love him. It can become an abstract factor, a figure in our lives. We talk more about the church than we do about the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. For us and us for Him. And yet it's only because of His love for us that we can declare our love for Him and labor in the church. It's our love for Him that is the most important thing to the living God. For He knows that if we love Him, everything else will fall into place. Everything else will fall into place. Because we'll listen to Him and we'll obey Him. Time has gone. But just come to God and tell Jesus you love Him. Tell Him you love Him. And let Him say, well, okay, I see it, I hear it, and here's what I want you to do. Here's what I want you to do for the Father's glory and for His name's sake. Please, please, please do not withdraw into regret, disappointment, and brokenness and be teased and taunted by Satan. For Jesus is praying that you will come and declare your love for Him. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that we have been loved before the foundation of the world, although the devil would tell us that, well, we were loved, but given our behavior, it's questionable. We thank You for the work in this man. We thank You for Your calling of Peter. We thank You for his confession having the Father reveal to him this truth. We see the denial and we praise you for the restoration. What a wonderful restoration. What beautiful care Jesus took in the events surrounding this restoration to deal with every aspect relating to his call and to the denial. We thank you the Lord Jesus loves us to care intimately for the way in which he deals with us. Pray for anyone in our midst tonight who has withdrawn, has been taunted and teased, or has genuine, genuine heart broken remorse. Lord, bring them to yourself. Lead them into forgiveness, seeking forgiveness. Lead them into declaring their repentance. And please restore them. Restore them. In Jesus' name, amen.